This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast, and on today's episode... Dentistry uh, faced some significant restrictions when uh, we were asked to limit our uh, treatments we provide for patients to emergency and non-elective treatments. With a lot of people in Canada now overdue for a dentist appointment, how will those dental offices reopen safely? We check in with the BC Wildfire Service to see what their season has looked like so far and what their short-term projections look like. Yeah, we're constantly uh, reassessing conditions and um, moving around resources where we're most needed. And... So we don't really see a situation here where there's a massive number of residents of the country who want to reopen quickly. While most Canadians are hoping the economy reopens soon, they feel some businesses should hold off. But which ones? That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Let's take a look at what is happening overseas. We keep hearing and reading in the news that the United Kingdom is struggling to reopen, even though they are still very much in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. So there, as you can expect, is a lot of confusion surrounding the plans to reopen the country. So to talk more about that, we're joined this morning by Global News European Bureau Chief, uh, Crystal Gumansing. Crystal, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here because we, we know the UK has now officially the highest death toll in Europe. What has the reaction to that news been? You know, it is it is um, kind of a surprise, but kind of not. If you've been watching the numbers, it's been increasing. So you knew it was uh, about to happen or bound to happen just because every day we were seeing hundreds of uh, new deaths being reported and new infections being confirmed. Uh, I think the big thing is that people thought that with the lockdown measures, with, with all of the uh, procedures in place, that maybe we wouldn't get to that point. And the key has been these are numbers we've had with a lockdown, and the difference really has been the NHS. The NHS has been coping quite well, and officials have been, um, you know, very happy to say that there's still capacity there and that they are able to uh, to, to say that the um, admission rates are starting to right. drop off now. So, you know, we are hearing that we are past the peak, definitely not out of uh, the groups of this virus by any means, but um, people are still being told just you have to be careful, you have to pay attention to this right. lockdown. And I'm just looking at Tower Bridge right now. And there was a, a good number of police officers through that went through the park and sort of, you know, went up to people and said, hey, if you're going to be exercising, you can be outside, but you're just hanging out. So and they, uh, you know, moved a lot of oh. people on. Interesting. Um, so the numbers are now higher than Italy. But what is the difference kind of between the two systems? You said the NHS in the UK has managed OK. What did they did they, or did they do anything differently than Italy? It was sort of the um, the time difference. It, it, it appears to be the the, uh, the key factor here in that they they had more time. They paid attention. They started telling people like, "Listen, we need to protect the NHS." There was a lot of work done with ramping up systems, ensuring that you know the uh, they stopped elective surgeries. They started moving people around. They put a call out for um, you know retired doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals to come back to work to help out. Uh, you know, they transformed the XL Center, which is a massive 
massive convention center into a field hospital and had it ready within, you know, less than, than two weeks. I think it was nine days, and there's several of those. So they really focused on making mm-hmm. sure that if they needed those hospital beds, that they would be there. And that appears to be the difference, because if you look at just pure numbers, we know that the UK is, you know, unfortunately at that, you know, uh, number one mark. You know, it's hard to find any other way to say it. But, you know, they've had more deaths here than anywhere else in Europe. Right. So has any of that affected their plans to reopen? That is the question, right? It's such a, it's such a delicate balance. Obviously, there is a need to get people back to work, to get the economy going. It's taken a huge hit on the economy here. But at the same time, I think people understand that there is such a risk of, of new infections, of that R rate, that reproductive number going back up. And they need to keep it below one. Um, and they say just until that they are sure that they can do that, they don't want to open up too soon because there is a huge risk mm-hmm. there. Now, the lockdown measures, they were put in place. They were announced by Boris Johnson back on March 23rd. So it has been a good amount of time. So, you know, people are getting a little, you know, anxious, uh, looking forward to getting uh, outside and having some things resume. But people are very much being told, listen, we're not going to do this until we have uh, a, a good level of confidence. All right, Crystal, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. You too. That's Crystal Gumansing, Global News European Bureau Chief, giving of an update on what is happening over in Europe, in particular, the UK. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I think a lot of us have been looking for all sorts of ways to keep busy, right, during this pandemic. And for many, that has meant doing puzzles. Now, I love a good puzzle. Usually, though, we do them in the winter months, especially around the holiday season. Uh, But this, of course, is no normal time. So yes, puzzling is great. I usually like to do a 1,000-piece one. That's about as much as I can handle. And I know I prefer a good Ravensburger puzzle. But here's the thing. Puzzling has become so popular that good luck finding a good puzzle to do these days. Uh, During the break there, I was just on a whole bunch of websites looking, and they are sold out everywhere. Not at Indigo and at Amazon. They're very expensive, and you have to wait quite a while to get them. It's just, and even on the Ravensburger website itself, it tells you, sorry, due to unexpected demand, we are unable to ship any product at this time. So they've given up too. They've sold out all their puzzles, which is remarkable. And there's something so satisfying about doing it. When you can put a few pieces together and see something, finally, the bigger picture emerging, I don't know. I just find it incredibly satisfying to do that. Well, lots of other people are finding this as well. Turns out there is a neurological reason for why solving a puzzle, getting it done, looking at that finished product is so satisfying. Our Nikki Reitmeyer took a look at this. Plus, did you know that the skills that you're developing as a puzzle solver are actually transferable to the real world? Find out. I'm sure that you know the feeling. That sensation of satisfaction when you complete a puzzle. When the right piece fits into the right place. It's a feeling that's been experienced for hundreds of years. The first jigsaw puzzle was made in the year 1760. Back then, maps were mounted on sheets of hardwood, and the wood was cut into shapes. They were used as tools for teaching geography popularity of the jigsaw puzzle soared during the Great Depression of the 1930s. It was a cheap, time-consuming, and reusable form of entertainment. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
That's because, once again, the jigsaw puzzle and other forms of puzzling, be they crosswords, number puzzles, or word puzzles, are filling our time, helping us through the boredom of staying at home. But puzzles can do more than just help us kill time. They can teach us skills that can be transferable to daily life. My name is Jonathan Berkowitz. I'm a professor of statistics and a consulting statistician by profession and a word guy, puzzle master, trivia expert, all things fascinating by avocation, by hobby, and by passion. And what makes me different from most other puzzlers, I love sharing my passion for puzzles. Jonathan may be one of the most interesting people that I've ever chatted to. All my life, I've been blessed with a great memory, instant recall, and a love of patterns, trivia, puzzles. It doesn't matter. It's all that same brain. Before the internet, I was kind of Google. So if people had a trivia question they needed the answer to, I either knew it or I had it in my extensive library. I played on Canadian television quiz shows. I was one of Canada's top trivia experts. And then the internet came. It became easier for people to find the answers themselves. And trivia sort of changed, changed shape, as did uh, all of pop culture. But I'd also been interested in puzzles all my life. And so my focus kind of shifted from trivia, which is still in the back of my mind, to puzzles. Okay, here's one of his puzzles. Let's see if you can solve this one. Can you name a professional women's tennis player who won one of the Grand Slam championships, whose full name you can find on the periodic table of elements? Okay, if you missed that, I'll repeat it. Name a professional women's tennis player who won one of the Grand Slam championships, whose full name you can find on the periodic table. Think about it for a moment. Okay, what's the answer? It's the Chinese tennis player Li Na, L-I is her first name, and Na is her second. That's lithium and sodium on two adjacent squares on the periodic table. Okay, to be fair, that was pretty tricky. If you did figure it out, then you may have experienced an aha moment, eureka, a sudden flash of insight. Feels good, doesn't it? But what's going on in our brains that makes us feel this way? Well, researchers have found that when you solve a puzzle with a flash of insight, a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens is activated. We get a dose of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which provides us with a positive feeling that motivates us to keep seeking reward in the future. But you wouldn't have received your dose of dopamine unless you succeeded at solving the puzzle. And how did you solve the puzzle? Well, you must have had some sort of mental method that you used in order to figure out the correct answer. Dr. Berkowitz is a professor at UBC, and he teaches a course called Puzzling It Out. He explained to me how his students can take what they learn from solving puzzles and apply that mental method to help them in real life situations. The characteristics that a puzzle solver has, you have to have grit. So you've got to be determination. Say, I don't know. I'm not interested. You know, just uh, tell me the answer. So you have to be able to stay the course, but you also have to be able to switch gears. So you have to be able to say, okay, well, that line of reasoning isn't getting in me anywhere. I have to switch tracks. You have to be observant. So you have to be able to see things that other people don't see. You have to be delighted with serendipitous discoveries. So one that I discovered at the beginning of the whole pandemic. We think that the coronavirus came from eating sketchy meat. So the term for a meat eater is carnivorous. 
And if you rearrange the letters of carnivorous, it spells coronavirus. Now, that is just a delight. It says maybe the whole world is supposed to be vegetarian, right? So <laughs> it becomes both fun and just delightful serendipity. So enjoy your puzzles during this quieter time, whatever they may be. Word puzzles, crossword puzzles, number puzzles, or jigsaw puzzles. And then use those skills when life returns back to normal again. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, some people out there have just been enjoying the kind of empty roads a little too much. I think we've all seen somebody going whipping by you on the road if you're in your car wondering, man, what is everybody doing out there? Are they all going way over the speed limit? Well, we certainly have proof of many people trying to talk more about that. We're joined now by Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. You know, it's amazing how many times I've been having this conversation with people lately. They go, have you seen the drivers out there? They're crazy. Yeah. And, and everyone's- they're just parking like crazy, like just all sorts of weird stuff that's going on out there because people think there are no rules anymore. Basically, it's it's bizarre because the roads are more empty than they were before. You know, the parking lots are more empty than they were before. But people seem to have just lost their minds. I was talking <laughs> to my dad about this. He said he was in a 60 zone. And he goes, look, fair enough. I was doing 70 in the 60 zone. He said he was in the slow lane and a car came up behind him. Now, a new driver with an N on the back, he later noticed. Uh, and the driver was laying on the horn, honk, honk, go faster. And he's like, I'm in the slow lane and I'm already doing 10 over the speed limit. This was just a couple days ago. I mean, it's madness out there. It is madness. I know lots of, uh, unfortunately, the, the police are doing their part, though, by trying to tell people about these crazy stories. But I think when they release these crazy stories, it just reinforces our suspicion that it's madness out there. Well, there's this one story out of South Surrey. So police pull over a Lamborghini SUV, which to be fair, I did not know that Lamborghini made SUVs. They're new. The (laughs) family-friendly version of a typical SUV, I guess, or typical (laughs) Lamborghini. I mean, come on. This vehicle was pulled over on 176th Street for driving excessively. What does that mean? It means that he was clocked doing 195 kilometers an hour. You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? 195 kilometers an hour on 176th Street, driving a Lamborghini SUV. Not even SUV. on the freeway on 176th? I mean, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's so dangerous. I mean, there's this other story that's just goofy is what this is. So in White Rock, you have an RCMP officer parked on the side of the road. He's sitting there in a marked police cruiser as well on Maple Street at Columbia. It's around 1 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon, very well lit, sitting in his vehicle. He looks up and he sees a delivery driver in a car, and the car has two wheels on the sidewalk, and it has two wheels on the road. So he goes and pulls over this driver and says, you know, sir, what are you doing? After watching it kind of drive slowly up the road, doing about 30 kilometers an hour. And the driver apologizes and he says, sorry, I was looking for a smoother ride to get up the hill. I wanted to avoid the speed bumps. So I decided to drive on the sidewalk instead. If he was going only 30 kilometers per hour, the speed bumps are not a problem. So what is like, if you're going to go fast, then yes, the speed bumps are a problem. If you do the guy in the Lamborghini, then yeah, the speed bumps are the problem. It's funny. The police officer, he said the same thing. He goes, the guy was doing 30. He might as well have just driven on the road with the speed bumps. (laughs) Right. 
Uh, the Lamborghini guy, we should mention, by the way, got the car impounded for seven days. So the police, they tweeted out that picture, right, of the Lamborghini being towed away on the flatbed truck there. Uh, but, and the, the driver got an excessive speeding ticket. But still, you think, will people learn their lesson having their car taken away for seven days? No, and I think we've seen this time and time again. I mean, we always go back to that story. It was the the fellow, I think he was driving over the Lionsgate Bridge, and he's already had his car impounded twice or three times or some stupid amount, and he kept getting his car impounded by police, and he did not care because he's this rich young guy, doesn't care if his car gets impounded, he just goes picks it up seven days later, he's busted by police again for excessive speeding. I mean, these people don't seem to get it. it. It doesn't seem to matter to them. I think they need to start doing something better than just a seven-day impounding of these vehicles. Well, And also the thing is, you're buying a Lamborghini SUV. Who knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars that cost you? Uh, no, you're not going to be able to do 195. Like you're just, so what are you spending all that money for? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a stupid vehicle to be driving around in the first place, to be fair. I mean, a Lamborghini SUV, give me a break. You're not driving it to your kid's soccer practice. If you are, they're certainly getting there on time because it can go really fast. But I yeah. mean, it's 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 a bit absurd. It's ridiculous. It's right? two hundred fifty thousand dollars, by the way. Yeah, so That's you can tell why they price. don't care. Yeah. <laughs> they obviously don't care <laughs> if they're getting impounded then for a few days or if they get a speeding ticket. I mean, it, if you can afford a two hundred fifty thousand dollar vehicle, I don't think you're too worried about the couple hundred bucks in Probably a speeding not. ticket. Yeah, and now, then the question is, what do you? How do you punish somebody like that? You, you can't. They don't well, care. Take their, license, take their license away. There's people like that. They'll still drive. What do you do? Put them in jail? Well, yes. Repeat, repeat <laughs> offender, right? Yes. yes you can. Of course you can. It's very, it's dangerous. It's crazy yeah. dangerous. I mean, when you got a guy on 176th Street going almost 200 That's kilometers nuts. an hour, we're lucky the story ended the way it did and we're able to laugh about it today. To be perfectly honest, yeah, we are. That's so true. You're right. I mean, that, that's dangerous is what that is. Now here, I don't want to end on a positive note. I do want to share a nice story with you. Not all drivers are crazy out there right now. We have some drivers doing very good deeds. And I want to share with you the story uh, that the BCSPCA shared over on Island Highway. So on the Malahat, there was a driver who spotted nine ducklings who were trying to cross the highway with their mom. The mom got spooked, though, and she flew off. So this (gasps) passerby witnessed this happen, thought, oh, geez, pulled over their vehicle. They collected the ducklings. They put them into a box and they put the box on the side of the road where it was safe and they actually waited for over an hour they called the they called the SPCR they called Wild Ark and they waited and they watched for over an hour a fair distance from this box to see if the mom would come back and the babies were chirping and they were chirping mom didn't end up coming back oh, no. so the babies were then given to Wild Ark they're doing well now and they're going to be released but i guess because they were so young they said mm, it wasn't likely that mom would even recognize them when they are released into the wild but they're being babies looked after. are doing well. Yeah, the babies are okay. They're going to be released again into the wild. Uh, unfortunately, they probably won't recognize oh, mom. But bad. the driver waited with them for over an hour that's to see so if nice. mom would come back. One of the best, I remember, commutes I ever had in the morning commuting from Ladner was, come. you know, everybody comes flying out of the Massey Tunnel, right? Heading northbound. And oh, yeah. came out of the Massey Tunnel. Everybody stopped. Full stop. What's going on? What's going on? Well, family of ducklings, right? Mother duck and ducklings crossing the freeway, Highway 99. And everybody would just stop. Not a single horn honking, nothing. Everybody just waiting. And I thought, you know what? People are good. I like this. It was was a good feeling that day. Thanks for that, Nikki. (laughs) Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's happening in Ottawa today. Joining us now is Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Good morning, Mercedes. 
Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So what is happening for the Prime Minister today? I know there is no 8 a.m. press conference for him. No, no press conference, and that's because he is on his way to repatriation ceremony in CFB Trenton. That, of course, is the Air Force base, uh, probably familiar to a lot of your listeners. It's where the Afghanistan casualties were brought back to, uh, and that is for him to be there at the repatriation ceremony for the uh, sailors and airmen and women who were killed in that uh, horrific crash of the cyclone helicopter uh, off the coast of the ship that it belonged to, the HMCS Fredericton in the Ionian Sea. Uh, we still really do not know what happened there, why it suddenly crashed. We do now know that the ship's crew or members of it witnessed the crash. You can imagine um, how incredibly traumatic that would be. And, and they searched and tried to find those desperately hoping for survivors. There were, as you know, no survivors. They managed to recover the remains uh, of two of the members of the crew. That was all. They are bringing them home to Canada, and they will be honouring them and honouring those who they were not able to bring home physically but in spirit uh, today. And it will look a little different than past repatriation ceremonies because you will see the soldiers there and, and the sailors and the airmen and women practising physical distancing. So they'll be two meters apart. We expect right. they're going to be wearing masks, uh, but they will still be having some kind of a ceremony to honor those who've fallen. Right. Meanwhile, in the House of Commons, though, it's one of those rare once a week sittings, right? That's right. So, I mean, they mostly are doing this, as you may have seen, over the internet now, just like uh, I'm doing most of my TV hits. Right. <laughs> well, everyone's at home. I am enjoying checking out their backgrounds, though, Simi, to see, like, whoa, what's behind them? Not what as good as yours, Mercedes. Not as good as yours. <laughs> <laughs> that, that background involved a lot of me moving furniture around. Uh, so <laughs> just looks good on TV. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're going to be actually in the house and this is going to be their uh, standard, well, standard now in the new normal way of doing things, which is that you don't have all 338 MPs there. You have a designated number that's representative and proportionate of the party for each one. I think things you're going to hear about on that agenda, the response to COVID-19, whether enough is being done, where the money's going, how's it going to get paid back. And I think firearms are still going to be a really big issue after that announcement by the government on Friday. Okay, and we know that there's still some injury or uh, industries, I should say, that really want some help. Yeah, there are. There's a lot of Canadians, too, who we hear from who still want help. I hear from seniors all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in terms of the, and also people with disabilities who were working part-time, who are very concerned about making ends meet. But in terms of the big industries, too, that we're hearing from still, uh, large oil companies, so yesterday, one of them posted over a $3 billion loss. Um, there have been programs for small and medium-sized oil companies, but not really for the huge ones. And they endure a similar situation to what airlines do, who's the other big uh, industry asking for money right now. And that's that a lot of their costs aren't paying people. So things like the wage subsidy program doesn't go that far. It's in the equipment that they've bought, which is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and for the oil guys, theirs is still in use, but there's no demand. For the airlines, a little different. Mm-hmm. All their planes are parked. And unless these planes are flying, they're not making any money. Uh, some are flying at about 5% capacity of North American Airlines. They used to. And they're saying it could take years to come back to where they were because they're going to have to start doing things very differently even when they get back in the air. They can't cram planes in, you know, where the rows, you're right up against each other. Yeah. That's going to be a no-go. Uh, but so that's the other industry that's saying that they need money or they don't think that they can survive. Interesting. Okay. And I know this is pretty challenging for the government right now, right? Because people seem to be getting antsy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
very anti. I've seen this. I was out for a walk on the weekend, uh, and it was lovely and warm here. And uh, what do you know? I saw a lot of backyard parties going on. Uh-huh. Uh, people were, were not necessarily super close to each other. But there were definitely gatherings there of, of five people, still technically, you know, kind of legal. Uh, but you can just sense it. I live on a pretty major street here, and it was so, so quiet for a while. And now I hear traffic again. Um, and that's telling me that it's starting to pick yeah. up. And this is the challenge they have, right? Because they don't want a second wave and for everyone to come pouring out at once. But people are increasingly getting frustrated. Really interesting article I read by a psychologist who worked with astronauts who talked about at eight weeks of isolation, people either tend to find their meaning in life or they just get really sick of it and want out no matter what. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people falling in that second category. Oh, I think you're absolutely right about that. Mercedes, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of us out there, and we're talking right across the country, are overdue for a dentist appointment right now. It's not like many of us love going to the dentist. I know some people do, but even those who are probably reluctant to go are thinking, yeah, I I really do need that cleaning, or maybe you've got a cavity that you just know needs to be taken care of, and all of that becomes hard to ignore. So what warrants an emergency visit, which is the only thing that's allowed right now, and when will offices start booking regular appointments again? So we wanted to talk more about that. Joining us now is Dr. Alistair Nickel, who is the chair of the BC Dental Association. Dr. Nickel, thank you very much for being being here. Good morning. I should quickly correct that. Uh, I'm not the chair of the Dental Association. I'm chairing a task force that is looking at the uh, helping dentists uh, with their efforts to come back to work. Right. Well, that sounds like a pretty important job. So what what does that involve? (laughs) Well, you know, as you know, um, dentistry uh, faced some significant restrictions uh, a number of weeks ago when uh, we were asked to limit our uh, the, tr- the, pay- the treatments we provide for patients to emergency and non-elective treatments. And that's, uh, that's, that's the case today. Um, of course, this afternoon, we were uh, expecting some sort of uh, uh, announcement from the Premier about how the province may start to open up. You know that well. Mm-hmm. And a couple of weeks ago, the provincial medical officer hinted that... Uh, Dentistry would be amongst the frontline health services that would uh, start the process to come back to uh, more fulsome service, uh, perhaps by the middle to the end of May. So what does that look like, though? What, what, what would it going to a dentist's okay. office be like under these new rules and this new reality? Well, uh, some of that remains, remains to be seen. We don't know what the new rules will be, and we don't know what the reality looks like yet. However, I mean, we can, uh, we can predict a number of things. Uh, there's going to be social distancing. That's going to be involved both the way we book patients and also what it looks like inside the office. There'll be fewer wait- chairs in the waiting room. We will uh, be sc- continue to screen patients by telephone before we actually uh, bring them into the office. People will be asked not to bring accompanying persons with them unless they absolutely have to. Patients will be asked to hand sanitize. There may be a prospect barrier between the administrative staff and uh, and patients, so that when the financial or insurance based transactions are completed, that protection is in place. So we'll be seeing fewer people. They'll be spaced further apart. 
uh, both time-wise and spatially. This must be a really tough time for dental practices, though, isn't it? Because they have also been shut down, and unlike doctors, they can't do over-the-phone consultations, really. Well, I'm sure a great number of over-the-phone consultations have taken place over the last few weeks. Um, Dentists have been uh, talking to their patients on the telephone, and if somebody uh, is presenting with a condition that may benefit from some medical treatment, such as antimicrobials or pain control, that can be done uh, without seeing a patient uh, if if there's a careful conversation. So there has been some telephone conversations telephone-based consultation and treatment over the last little while. Okay, so what about personal protective equipment for the hygienists and the dentists themselves? That's obviously going to be an issue as well if they're treating patients. That's going to be a huge issue. Um, As you you know, of course, that uh, personal protective equipment is an extremely short supply, and that's that's a global thing. Uh, Currently, uh, most of the personal protective equipment that comes into the country is actually brought in by the federal government, who then distributed to provincial governments, who make it available to to, to, to healthcare. So uh, it is it is very difficult, if not almost impossible, for dental offices to obtain that uh, personal protective equipment at this point, and that's going to be a limiting factor as we move forward. But I think we have to be clear. Um, the, the, this isn't going to be a free-for-all opening. Uh, this will be gradual, be incremental. It will be based on what's happening in the community with the disease COVID-19. And it will be reassessed periodically based on what the uh, epidemiological data shows. So it's going to be a, a slow based in gradual reintroduction of dental services. Right, because I can see the PPE issue being the big one. How are hygienists going to work on patients without knowing that they are also protected? That's very close contact. Absolutely, and uh, I would suggest that hygienists should not be working on patients unless they have uh, adequate uh, personal protective equipment, and that's, that's going to be a prerequisite. Now, what exactly that looks like mm-hmm. is yet to be determined. Um, you know, the, uh, we will we will follow um, the uh, the advice that is given by the, uh, that is posted on the BC Centers for Disease Control website. That's given by the provincial medical officer. We will be using that as guidance and uh, following their recommendations. Are there any areas or jurisdictions that you know of, Doctor Nichol, that have kind of reopened dental practices? Yes. Um, Saskatchewan has done so, Manitoba has done so, uh, other provinces have announced that they are doing so. And in every case, uh, there are significant limitations in place as to what dentists can do and what can- dentists can't do and under what circum- and, and, and what the circumstances are for physical layout and distancing and that sort of thing. <clears throat> Uh, and mostly, uh, as far as I understand, treatment is still being based on, uh, on, on urgency. So in other words, a problem that is urgent where uh, for not doing the treatment in a timely way can, can cause continuing deterioration, make the, compli- the treatment more complicated down the road, where there is acute infection involved, where there's pain involved. Those, those are the things that are being prioritized. Okay, so you foresee that potentially as how we're going to treat it for the next couple of months? I do. I think that uh, this is going to be based on, uh, on the urgency of the treatment need. It'll be a relaxation from emergency only. 
uh, and it'll be gradual and it'll be careful and of course it will be done in a manner that is safe for patients. You know, dentists have for years been uh, managing uh, patients with infections and, uh, and, and, and other diseases. You just need to think about HIV and hepatitis B and hepatitis C and those sort of things. Uh, well used to using personal protective equipment to protect the patients, the staff and themselves from disease transmission. This is a variation on that in that unlike other respiratory tract infections like such as influenza where we were simply able to reschedule patients who, uh, mm-hmm. who had symptoms, this is a longer term thing. So we're having to adapt a little. We're having to change some of our, uh, our, 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 our protocols mm-hmm. that we're adapting to make it safe for, for all of us. Dr. Nickel, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. That is Dr. Alistair Nickel, chair of the BC Dental Association's Back to Work Task Force. Uh, he's working on this, as you can tell, but it sure sounds like if you were hoping for that, just even regular checkup or cleaning, that is still quite a ways off. Not, it sounds like, even on the horizon at this point. Um, but they're going to start looking at, from the top down, people who have the most urgent dental problems start kind of get them back into dental offices with a lot of kind of safety precautions put in place. We'll have more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. The Lynn Valley Care Centre outbreak is now officially over and uh, all of the uh, people who are affected in that uh, facility have recovered now, which is really great news. That, of course, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about the worst seniors care home outbreak that we saw in this province, saying it is officially over. They have now gone 28 days without a new infection at that facility that, in the end, had something like 20 deaths resulting from COVID-19. Now, Premier John Horgan, as we know, is set to announce some plans for reopening the economy and how that's going to look in BC. That's coming up at a 3 p.m. press conference this afternoon. You will hear it live right here. But one of those areas, which will probably be the last where we see any kind of restrictions lifted, would likely be care homes. To talk more about this now, Daniel Fontaine joins us, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Simi. So you've been deep into this for weeks and weeks and weeks now. How is the care home situation right now? Well, we definitely uh, are improving. And as you just heard with Lynn Valley, let me first say I want to just applaud all the workers that have been there uh, going in every single day into Lynn Valley. I know it's been very stressful for them and for the families and and everyone involved. And I'm just so happy to hear that um, they've had 28 days now without an outbreak. We have seen a number of other care homes, I think about a dozen now, that have been removed off of the outbreak list, which is really good. We have definitely flattened the curve and we're uh, coming down on the other side in terms of impacts to care homes. But I just want to caution uh, everyone that we are nowhere near out of the woods on this. And and, uh, long-term care homes were the first to be impacted by COVID-19 and will likely be uh, some of the last places that will have uh, the restrictions lifted given the potential for devastation if COVID-19 enters uh, into into one of those care sites. Let's talk about some of those restrictions and how different is it now in a long-term care home versus, say, two months ago? Very different. Uh, Probably the most noticeable impact, obviously, is the restriction of visitors that are coming in. So um, it's uh, highly limited in terms of who can come in and out, and that is done as a protective measure to make sure that seniors... uh, don't contract COVID-19. We're also seeing uh, right now voluntary measures soon to be uh, 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 imposed 
uh, in terms of the single site where staff can only work at one site as opposed to multiple sites. So that is ha- happening right now. Um, we also have, uh, you know, workers who are, are putting in many long hours and, and having to wear extra protective, uh, personal protective equipment, PPE. Um, all those protocols are being put in place. So there's, it's a lot different today. Uh, you know, we're seeing uh, people who are interacting with their loved ones via Skype and on iPads mm-hmm. and, and cell phones. And so it's very different, um, but it is stabilized and we are kind of getting into that new normal. And we're hopeful that uh, we can return back to uh, as normal a situation as we can sooner rather than later. But we don't want to, we definitely don't want to rush this. Are there things that you see that might be with us always when it comes to long-term care homes? For instance, the idea of not letting people work at multiple sites. I think that, Simi, will likely be one of the legacies of uh, this uh, pandemic is that we will likely not see uh, government, not only here in British Columbia, but I think across Canada, restrict the number of uh, staff that can work from site to site. I think that will likely be one of the the legacies. I think we're also going to see an increased and enhanced um, hygiene coming in and out. You may start seeing things like hand-washing stations right at the front of care homes, and you'll be required to do that upon entry and upon exit uh, of care homes. There will be, I think, a few things that will just not go away. And I think that's not, not actually a bad thing. I think there are some things we've learned through this pandemic that uh, can be practices we put in place. But that being said, Simi, you and I have talked about this. We have a health human resource crisis. We've had a crisis in this province for the better part of like three to four years. We don't have enough care staff. We don't have enough being trained. We have the federal government limiting the number. We have them bringing in uh, workers to work in our agricultural uh, fields, but we do not have them coming in to help our our seniors in care homes. Big problems on that front. And I think that, you know, we can talk about this this morning, but we have bigger, more systemic problems that have to be dealt with. And I'm hoping that the pandemic encourages our politicians and government to take action. Yeah, is that kind of the balance that you're dealing with right now, Daniel, is on the one hand, there's all these, you know, negative stories coming out about care homes, but it's also, it is an opportunity as well, isn't it, to put that industry in the spotlight and fix some problems that have been around for a very long time. Simi, I've been doing this now for eight years as the CEO for the BC Care Providers Association. I'll be leaving in a few weeks. I'll be moving on to something else, but I can tell you I have been in Ottawa. I've been in Victoria. I have been uh, at the top of my lungs trying to get people's attention to talk about the issues facing long-term care homes in this country. And I hate to say that it took a pandemic for our politicians to finally begin uttering the words long-term care in this country. But you know what? I don't care at this point. I'm glad they're talking about it. I hope they take action and I hope they look at some of these systemic issues that are facing the sector and let's work together and sit down with, with organizations like the BC Care Providers and others across the country we have solutions. We've laid them all out. We've made recommendations for the better part of five years on, on what can be and should be done in long-term care to both protect seniors and to make sure that we have enough staff to make sure that when seniors need the care, the care is there when they need it. And right now, um, it's very topical. I'm hoping that in six to 12 months, we don't move on to something else. And you and I are still talking about long-term care and looking at some, uh, some recommendations and finally implementing them. I hope so too. Daniel, thank you. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Daniel Fontaine, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Uh, yes, we're talking about reopening the economy, but care homes, it uh, sounds very much like they will be staying the course with what's been going on there in the last six weeks. As Daniel Fontaine just pointed out, probably the last place where you're going to see any kind of restrictions lifted would be in that industry. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Hard to believe it's that time already, but yes, we are now looking ahead to what we normally look ahead to at this time of year, wildfire season. I know not on top of mind for everybody, uh, but it is coming up. We wanted to see what is expected, what the short-term projections are. So joining us now is Eric Berg, the BC Wildfire Service spokesperson. Erica, thank you very much for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I know planning probably goes on all year long for this kind of thing, doesn't it? Yeah, we're constantly uh, reassessing conditions and um, moving around resources where we're most needed. So that's, that's for sure. So what's uh, what's the situation right now? Well, right now um, we've had just over 100 wildfires this year. Um, approximately 80 percent of those have been human caused, and the rest have yet to be determined. Um, when we're looking at what the spring has been like for wildfires, um, it's been rather normal. Um, most of those wildfires starting in those dry valley bottoms and have then been assisted by those cool overnight temperatures. And is there anything burning right now that you're concerned about? Um, nothing of nothing of concern right now. Um, we had a big uh, we had a bigger wildfire of note in Squamish, right. and that one is now um, low under control. But at this time, um, nothing of concern. Just now, I understand is like if eighty percent of those fires are human caused, just the ones from you know this year. Um, that must be a huge thing that you know that you guys fight against here. Is that if we could just get those under control, if we could just cut down on the human caused wildfires, it would make a huge difference. Certainly, and, and that's one of the reasons that we have those Category 2 and Category 3 province-wide um, prohibitions in place at this time. Um, it's to keep uh, the, the risk of those human-caused wildfires down, um, not only to uh, protect our communities and our, and our forests, but also to protect our staff during this unique time of, of COVID-19. Do you have predictions for this summer? Like, what are your forecasts telling you? Well, when it comes to wildfire activity, those long-range forecasts are not the most reliable. Therefore, we generally do not make predictions um, beyond two months and instead focus on those short-term projections. That being said, snowpack levels, being one of the factors we measure at this time of year, have been largely normal. Um, So we just don't want those to melt all at once. So ideally, those hot, dry spells are peppered with cooler days to offer some recovery and, and in, in light of recovery, uh, we're anticipating an increase in um, relative humidity, um, which will be visible in the, those greener grasses and budding fruit and flowers, which are positive signs in, in terms of uh, not too dry fuel. I guess, do we even have a normal anymore? <laughs> I mean, yeah, so 2017 and 2018 were anomalies. They definitely do affect that average. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we're looking at you know previous previous season um, uh, prior to 2017-2018, then we're we're along those normal lines. But certainly in this time of um, COVID-19 as well, if that's what you were speaking to, it's it's a new new era. Yeah. Well, let's hope for normal then. Erica, thank you. Thank you. Take care. That is Erica Berg, the spokesperson for the BC Wildfire Service. Uh, Let's hope more like last summer, right? Last summer was a lot quieter than the two summers that we'd had before. Uh, So hopefully things will stay calm on that front, but they are still looking uh, long-term and and bracing themselves for what could come this summer. So we'll keep you posted on that. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Let's talk about how Canadians are feeling about reopening the country. We know here in BC that we are going to get an announcement from the government today about how that looks for this province. So three o'clock this afternoon is when the big announcement comes, what the plan looks like. You can hear it right here. Of course, the Linda Steele Show will carry that live for you. But we can get a little preview of what how and how people are feeling about this topic, because according to some new polling by research company, uh, the majority of people are just fine with keeping things very slowly reopening. Joining us now is research co-president Mario Conseco for more. Good morning, Mario. Good morning, Simi. Great to be here. Well, nice to have you. So were you surprised by some of these results? Not at all. I think what we see here is a lot of Canadians erring on the side of caution when it comes to easing the restrictions that we have due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Even though we see 53% who are in favor of what specific uh, governments will do, uh, most of this support is moderate. So we don't really see a situation here where there's a massive number of residents of the country who want to reopen quickly. Right. So let's take a look at some of that. You asked people kind of individually what people think should be opened, right? Yes, and we don't see more than 3 out of 10 Canadians who would be happy with specific services uh, being here before the end of May. 28% who want to have coffee shops open for dining service, 26% who want to have salons open, 25 who want to have restaurants open for dining service. So even though we have a lot of support for many of the things that are that are that are right now being a uh, discussed uh, there's very few canadians who would be willing to say okay it's open now i'll go to a restaurant i'll get that haircut that i need or i'll go to the gym right. so definitely a situation where there's more canadians who are saying this is fine but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to partake on this next week. Right. So only 26% of the people you surveyed said they think salons should be able to reopen by the end of this month. And 25% saying that restaurants should be able to open for dine-in service at the end of this month. That is a lot of people. So 75%, three quarters who are saying, no, I'm good. We don't need that right now. Exactly. What we see here is a situation where even when this is open, even when we get this go ahead to go and do certain things that we can do right now, we're not going to have this massive influx of residents who are going to be going to the restaurant, going to the barbershop. If anything, it's a little bit higher with the 18 to 34 demographic, but it's fewer than 40 percent. So you don't really have a situation right now where there's a lot of residents who say it's over, it's done, we can go on with our daily lives. This is going to be very slow, and I think Canadians realize it. And even less so, it looked like even less support for movie theaters and gyms and things like that. Yes, that is very low, only 20%. One out of five Canadians who say that they are in favor of having gyms open or movie theaters open before the end of this month. The level of support is lowest for live sporting events, 13%. I know we all miss the hockey and the soccer and the CFL, but there's definitely not a scenario right now where a lot of Canadians would say, yes, I'm fine, If I'm, and, and, and I think this is one of the things that, that should be open sooner rather than later. Let's talk about people's emotions here, Mario, as well, because you asked people essentially to pick an emotion that describes how they're feeling right now. Yes, uh, this has been changing for some time. You know, when we first asked about it in the middle of March, it was mostly fear. Now it's sadness, number one emotion that is felt by Canadians when they think about the COVID-19 outbreak is sadness. 66% used it uh, to essentially describe what they're feeling. 64% fear, so very close together. Uh, Anger at 32%, angst at 27%. Uh, Definitely a situation here where the more this continues, the more we start to feel sad. I think it was mostly fear and anger at the start of this pandemic, especially if we go back to the numbers that we had back in March. 
but now it's May, and we see now that sadness is the thing that is really creeping in when it comes to Canadians looking at this outbreak. Right. Did you notice any other changes over the last couple of months? There's a little bit of a shift when it comes to trust. I think we do see a lot of people who look at this as an opportunity to rekindle with specific services, with the healthcare workers, with everybody who is working very hard to make sure that we can go back to our lives sooner rather than later. Uh, but it's mostly sadness. And, you know, there are definitely some changes here. Women more likely to be feeling sad at 74 percent, also highest among those who are age 55 and over at 71 percent. And we are one of the one of the areas of Canada that is the saddest at 70 percent. So definitely a situation worth watching as we continue in the next few weeks. Yeah. OK. Did you check? Did you break it down by province in terms of people who want to see things reopen as well? Is it pretty much the same right across the country? It's very similar. I think what, what we see here is really fascinating in the sense that even though we've had a couple of areas of the country where the discussions about reopening have been uh, definitely happening at a much higher pace, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking about Ontario and Quebec, there's a little bit of a, a higher level of support for reopening things, but it's not massive. We don't see half of Ontarians, half of Quebec are saying, yes, I want to get that haircut before the end of May. Interesting. Mario, thank you for your time on that. My pleasure. See me anytime.